Eric saves the day, and Ariel and Eric get married. So, <laughs> on a boat. On a boat. On a boat. Okay, so obviously the reason Carl's saying on a boat is because presumably, well, see, I don't I'm know if Eric's Catholic because I think he comes from some sort of Protestant Scandinavian country. He seems very Protestant. He seems very Protestant. <laughs> Just everything about the movie. What does that even mean? You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. You're listening to, you guessed it, CNA Newsroom, a podcast that brings you great stories and Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief J.D. Flynn. And guys, we have a great episode for you this week. It's pretty diverse. We're going to talk about Advent in the Byzantine Church. We're going to talk about pornography. And then we're going to talk about Disney princesses and canon law. But it is Advent, which means that some people in our office are singing the newly popular Christmas hymn, Mary, Did You Know? Those people should stop. Did Mary know that Jesus would be the Savior? Yeah, she did, because an angel told her? In Luke 1. St. Jerome was right. Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, my friends. Anyway, we've got a lot to cover. But first, here are some of this week's top stories. George H.W. Bush was laid to rest in Texas this week. Bush served as the 41st President of the United States. The president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference praised Bush as a courageous man, dedicated leader, and selfless public servant. An American priest was arrested in the Philippines this week amid allegations he sexually assaulted dozens of boys over several decades. The priest faces federal charges. Amazon's founder and CEO donated $15 million to Catholic charities this week. Catholic Charities of New Orleans and Miami and Catholic Community Services of Western Washington were three of 24 organizations selected to receive grants by the Bezos Day One Families Fund. Visit catholicnewsagency.com for more information about these stories as well as the latest news and analysis. With me in our podcast studio right now is Perry West. Perry is one of our reporters here in the Denver Bureau. And uh, over the last year, Perry has written a lot about pornography. So now he's become, I I would say, probably one of the foremost experts in Catholic media, probably in the world, on pornography. I want to start with this announcement that came out this week that Starbucks banned access to pornography in its stores. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So what would happen? People would go to Starbucks and get a coffee and look at porn. Is that what the problem was or were there bigger issues? I think there was a a few bigger issues in that. Starbucks had been pressured to remove pornography back in 2014 um, by uh, a group called Enough is Enough. And they said that one of the issues was that people could use the public Wi-Fi because it was easier to go under the radar uh, to access stuff like child pornography. Oh, uh, so like the anonymity of the IP address in Starbucks. I don't exactly know how that would work, but people could use that public network to to look at child pornography. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And uh, and the same thing with uh, they could also bypass some of the parental controls. So, uh, you know, people under 18 uh, could access pornography. Now, Starbucks is not the only kind of large entity to ban pornography. Tumblr was in the news for kind of pulling porn off of its micro-blogging site. But also, there are countries lately that have have blocked pornography. Is that right? Yeah. Um, A couple countries have blocked pornography, uh, Nepal and India. Um, Nepal, last time I looked, it was uh, above 20,000 sites that they had uh, aimed to block. 
India was was smaller. It was about 800, but it was focused more, I think, at the major porn sites. The idea behind that was it was in response to sexual violence, uh, especially in men. There's some studies in India that were about the distortion of sexual taste uh, as men who were looking at um, things like rape uh, pornography, you know, had uh, feelings and and then ambitions to go actually pursue that after um, kind of getting uh, conditioned to look at that pornography. So that's really interesting because obviously there's just a huge cultural narrative that says, you know, looking at pornography is a private thing and that it doesn't have a social impact. And I think, you know, lots of people would say, in, indul- you know, indulging a, a sexual fantasy in what they way, they would term a safe way, a way that doesn't involve acting out is, is you know, I, I'm sure there are people who would say, well, that is, is probably actually... Um, psychologically healthy or something like that. But but these studies that you're talking about in these countries, in fact, are saying, no, there's um, there's a correlation between viewing pornography um, and, and and sexual violence. I think you know, one of the saddest things is that pornography is not only considered to be neutral, you know, kind of acceptable, but it's now considered to be something that's healthy uh, for the human psyche and to release that uh, sexual tension or, or whatever. The fact uh, is there is a, a lot of studies out there that uh, point to a connection between um, pornography and violence and um, even change in the brain. Um, but, you know, there, there needs to be more research. And uh, I think that was one of the important things that uh, a, a committee in Parliament in England had said. Uh, it was the House of Commons Women and Equalities Committee. And they had pointed to uh, an increase in sexual harassment and uh, kind of the, the connection to things in social media, but, you know, also in pornography. Not that it's like just promoting sexual harassment, but it's also making it more acceptable to the person uh, as like an, a psychological effect. Yeah, I wonder because there's such, our culture seems to be so much clearer now about the unacceptability of sexual harassment. And I think, what, you know, that in the past few years with the rise of the Me Too movement, it's like, no, we don't sexually objectify women. But at the same time, there seems to be a, a broader acceptance or at least a broader use of pornography, which objectifies, you know, not only women, but, but sexuality itself. It's possible even our, some of our listeners are struggling with pornography. And so obviously confession is an important start, but what should a person do um, in addition to confession? What, what can people do to address this problem? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, J.D. There's a lot of resources out there. Covenant Eyes uh, is one of them. I know Fight the New Drug has a um, program that, that people can access. There's, there's tons more. Um, you know, besides kind of getting into, involved with those, I would say having... Um, a strong uh, accountability group, uh, somebody that you can talk to, because I think one of the biggest problems with pornography is that it's so pushed down by shame that it's so it's so hidden, and so people kind of tend to kind of fall into it, and then kind of be like nobody nobody's struggling with this. I'm I'm the only one, and that just kind of worsens it when they feel abandoned almost by everybody else, or, or separate, or misfitted. So I think it's important to make sure that it kind of comes in with the community of finding a priest, uh, you know, obviously said confession, but also outside of confession. And just, you know, people in your church and friends and people your age that you can talk to about it to combat it through uh, through community. Perry West is um, keeping track of what's happening with pornography so that you don't have to. And um, <laughs> Perry, we're all grateful for that. Thank you. And thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Advent started this week. Originally, we were thinking about talking about the meaning of Advent and some of the Advent traditions that you probably already practice. Advent wreaths and those little cardboard Advent calendars that have chocolate behind a door for each day. 
if you're anything like me, you open the doors, all of them on the first day of Advent and eat all the chocolate. It's waxy, not very good, but at least it's chocolate. Anyway, a few of the members of our team here in Denver are Byzantine Catholics, and they were telling us about how they prepare for Christmas. I want to explain quickly what a Byzantine Catholic is. Most of us think of the Catholic Church as kind of um, one monolithic structure, one one entity, the same everywhere it goes. But in fact, the Catholic Church is a a, a family of, of 24 independent sui juris churches who are all in communion with the Pope, all in communion with each other, all believe the same things, but have a different liturgical history, um, a, a, a different um, ritual history, a different origin of development um, in different parts of the world, in different countries, all of whom um, are united by virtue of their communion with the Pope in Rome. The largest of those churches is the Latin Catholic Church. Most of us are Latin Catholics or Roman Catholics. But there's a whole other subset of Catholics, Eastern Catholics, and a lot of those we refer to as Byzantines. Again, Byzantines are Catholics. They're in communion with the Pope. They profess the same faith that um, all Catholics profess, but they do some things a little bit differently than we Latin Catholics, Roman Catholics do them. One of those things is Advent. Our producer, Kate Vike spoke with Father Michael O'Loughlin, a Byzantine priest who's pastor of Holy Protection of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church here in Denver, Colorado. Father O'Loughlin is also co-host of the podcast Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Here's some of their conversation. So Roman Catholics, we started observing the liturgical season of Advent this week. And initially, I, I wanted to ask what a Byzantine Advent looks like, but the Byzantine Church doesn't actually have Advent. Can you tell me about that? You know, many Byzantines do call it Advent. What we do, um, just based upon the, the, that Latin that Latin word, but um, the, the the term of preparation for for the feast of the Nativity of our Lord Christmas, um, it is different. So, of course, Roman Catholics also celebrate the Church New Year at the beginning of the first Sunday of Advent. So, um, it's it's a very important season, um, and it's four weeks um, in preparation that leads up to the Feast of Christmas. Um, in the Eastern churches and in, in our Byzantine Catholic Church, uh, the new year is September 1st. And that, that is based on a few things. Um, it was the emperor's birthday was in September back the Byzantine emperor. So he wanted that, that, uh, that day. It also corresponds a little more closely with the Jewish new year. And finally, it, uh, it makes the new year based liturgically on the, the life of the mother of God. Um, so, um, the mother of God's birthday is in September, and she dies in August. And so um, the liturgical year is based upon her life. The first big feast is her birth. The last big feast is her death. Um, but instead of having a four-week preparation, uh, similar to Lent, we have a 40-day preparation. So you could call it a 40-day Advent, but we call it the Philip's Fast um, because it begins the day after the Feast of the Holy Apostle Philip. Um, so his feast is on November 14th, and then our 40-day preparation for Christmas begins on November 15th. And what does that 40-day season of fasting, what does it look like? Is it similar to Lent that the Roman Rite would observe? Yes, it is. It's Well, it's... Um, it's more similar to the way that we do Lent, what we call the Great Fast. But yes, it's it's a forty days of of penitential preparation for the coming of the feast. So the idea of these these fasting periods, these penitential periods, is to through penance, through prayer, fasting, and alms giving, these three things that the Bible mentions uh, as things we do in secret, the ways we, in a sense, purge ourselves of sin. The idea is that these feasts fill us up. 
and 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 we get filled up with Christ through through anamnesis, the remembrance of these great mysteries and the things in the life of Christ in in the life of our salvation, the history of our salvation. And so, what happens is is um, we spend forty days. So during the great fast, um, Lent preparation for Easter, we spend the forty days before Holy Week. Um, and we we fast or abstain is a better word. We abstain from meat, dairy, wine, and oil. So you you spend pretty much the entire forty day fast um, as a vegan, but also not frying anything or drinking alcohol. And we Byzantines have three of those. Uh, one is a preparation for the Dormition of the Mother of God, or what you guys call the Assumption. The other one is for the preparation for the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, and then this one that prepares us for the Feast of the Nativity or Christmas. So each one of those are, are a little bit lighter than the great fast and in different ways. So um, instead of that, for this fasting period, um, different churches have different traditions, but our Byzantine Catholic Church um, generally fasts from meat and dairy uh, Monday through Friday, and then you fast from alcohol and anything fried in oil Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then um, Saturdays and Sundays are, are not fasting days at all. They are for some churches, but we don't generally follow those other churches. But honestly, uh, in here in America, our bishops, um, know that we're weak. <laughs> and so they, they don't impose nearly that strict of a fast, um, on us. They, they just say no meat on Fridays, which is of course the general meaning anyway, but they call it a penitential season. So I generally tend to encourage my parishioners to do a little bit more according to the tradition, because the idea is that you know, our souls are waiting for the coming of Christ. And if our souls are waiting, but our bodies aren't, it's almost like kind of a, a ripping apart of our person. So if our bodies are desiring something, namely food, um, then our souls desiring something, namely the birth of Christ, there's a certain unity and a rest and a working together that our bodies and our souls have together. So how does this period of preparing for the nativity, for the birth of Christ, how does it compare to how you celebrate Christmas? Yes, very good question, because it, it should be the exact opposite. So we prepare for 40 days through penance, prayer, fasting, almsgiving that is anticipatory and, and self-sacrificial. And then as soon as you celebrate Christmas, you kick off a 40-day period of celebration. Since our souls were yearning for the coming of Christ as a child, so our bodies are also yearning, and we do that through through a, a, an absence of food in a sense, where our body feels uh, an anticipation and a neglect in the sense in preparation for that. So as soon as Christmas happens, then we feast. Our body feels full, and our soul feels full because we're celebrating the feast. And so um, there's different kind of levels of the celebration of the Nativity of our Lord of Christmas. But um, it, it, if you want to look for that mirroring, that 40 days, it would then end on what we call the Feast of the Encounter of our Lord with Simeon and Anna, um, and that then the Roman the presentation of our Lord in the temple on, on February 2nd. Father, thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. It was fun. Thank you. So one of the goals of our podcast is to just... Um, introduce you to CNA's uh, writers and editors and producers and to share with you just some of the things that we talk about on a regular basis. One of the things that I think is coolest about our news team is that all of the people who work here are really smart and interesting people. We often just have fun conversations about interesting stuff. The other day we had the beginnings of a conversation about Disney princesses getting married and how that relates to canon law. And we decided that rather than keep having it there, we'd have it 
with you on the podcast. So I'm joined by a few members of CNA's team, and they're going to introduce themselves to you and tell you their favorite Disney movie. Hi, I'm Michelle LaRosa, managing editor, and my favorite Disney movie is Beauty and the Beast. Carl Bunderson, assistant editor, and I also favor Beauty and the Beast. My name is Mary Rezach. I'm a staff writer, and my favorite Disney movie is Mulan. And I think my favorite Disney movie is Fox and the Hound, which we're probably not going to talk about with regard to marriage because uh, animals can't get married. And so we start off by talking about Belle. Carl, like, what's what's the rundown of, of, of Beauty and the Beast? There's a beast, and he captures first a father who is traded in his capture by his daughter. So she's held captive by the beast for some time. They eventually fall in love. He releases her to go back to her ailing father but she chooses freely to return to the beast and then they get married. Then they get married. Yeah, so here's Canon 1089. No marriage can exist between a man and a woman who has been abducted or at least detained with a view of contracting marriage with her unless the woman chooses marriage of her own accord after she has been separated from her captor and established in a safe and free place. And so Mary was asking, is the beast's marriage civil valid? Um, but Carl, what's the what's the verdict? Uh, I believe it's valid because she freely chose to come back. Because she freely chose to come back. So Beauty and the Beast, valid marriage. When she goes back, doesn't don't they throw it's her like and father safe. into that yeah. thing? Yeah. What thing? You know, they the, they sing the Gaston song and then they they are like, oh, you crazy crackpot, you see a beast in the mirror, and then they throw her and the father into that wooden thing so they can go kill the beast. So I thought that Belle like went home, but she doesn't go home. She goes to the like bar and then is kind of kidnapped i mean in differing versions of it like we have a book disney version only where <laughs> okay retracted <laughs> no what happens in different versions carl uh we have a book version where it's clear that she's like been at her home for some time like caring for her father so yeah i think that establishes a and it's ambiguous in the movie so i think we can take that as like additional evidence from outside the movie that she was there for a while. I, I think we should. And marriage invo- enjoys the favor of the law. We presume a marriage is valid unless we have reason not to think it's valid. So what do you think, Michelle? Valid or not? I'm going to guess it's going to be valid. But I do have a question with the language you just used that if a man kidnaps a woman, yes. this does not apply the other round. If a woman kidnaps a man, it's okay. To, the, the, this this does apply. not apply uh, <laughs> if a woman kidnaps a man with a view towards marrying him. <laughs> This It doesn't. I presume, so most canons like this have a history. So I presume that at some point, some dude uh, kidnapped some chick with a view towards marrying her, and the church had to figure out whether the marriage was valid or not. But what I find really interesting about this canon is that this code was adopted in 1983. I can see that, like, there was a time when this was probably necessary, but how many women are being kidnapped with a view to marriage? I guess it's a universal church, and there's stuff that I just don't know about going on pieces but yeah i feel like it's possible that they left it into the in canon law school people would get to work on it and then we could do this podcast and so that was that. nice that's probably yeah. this is exactly what they had in mind I think. <laughs> <laughs> so who are we going to talk about next cinderella cinderella what's the deal with cinderella so with cinderella she is you know the wicked stepmother and stepsisters have her at home doing all their chores and kind of being their servant and then the fairy godmother gets her all set up to go to the ball. The prince sees her, falls in love with her, and she runs off and he has the glass slipper. He, once he finds her, he wants to marry her immediately. He has been on essentially one, maybe we counted it as even half of a date with her, doesn't know her name. 
Um, I think most people would agree that that's kind of foolish, but is it valid? I would say yes. Why? Arranged marriage is a thing that is, exists, and arranged marriages can be valid. And I think in the contemporary West, we have this idea that marriage has to be preceded by a long sort of like subjective interpersonalist courtship. And maybe Cinderella is challenging us to have a deeper view of, of what marriage is. Now, one interesting thing about that is that only the Pope can judge the marriage of uh, the head of state. So I think the prince's dad dies. I think he actually becomes king, which means that Cinderella couldn't go to a tribunal. She would have to go to the pope. Why is that? Um, because canon law says. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> would there be like a conflict of interest or something? Or? One thing about canon law is you never have to know why it's you the rule. Just you just have, have to know, know the rule. It's the rule. Okay. That's it's the like rule. math. Does that have something to do with Henry VIII? One thing about canon law is... <laughs> Here's an interesting one. How about in The Little Mermaid, Ursula? Remember the evil witch lady who impersonates The Little Mermaid? So there's a lot going on in The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid goes to Ursula, who's like this sea witch. The Little Mermaid really wants to become a human because she saw Prince Eric at his birthday party and fell in love with him. She comes to Ursula, makes a deal with her, Ursula gives her legs in exchange for her beautiful singing voice. And she tells her that she has three days. And within those three days, she has to have true love's kiss. And that will turn her human forever. But if she doesn't get kissed in those three days, then she reverts back to being a mermaid. And then Ursula takes Ariel's voice and like transforms herself into a human. And she tricks Eric and then she casts a spell on him. Um, they're about to get married on this barge. But right before they do, someone had informed Ariel's father, Triton, about what was going on. He and some of their friends who were also informed um, interrupt the marriage, make things go wrong. And the spell on Eric is broken trident who's ariel's dad gets kidnapped by ursula she takes over his power it looks like she's going to rule the world but eventually eric saves the day and ariel and eric get married so <laughs> <laughs> on a boat on a boat, on a boat. Okay, so obviously the reason Carl's saying on a boat is because presumably... Well, see, I don't know if Eric's Catholic because I think he comes from some sort of Protestant Scandinavian country. He seems very Protestant. He seems very Protestant. (laughs) (laughs) Just everything about the movie. What does that even mean? I I think they show like... I think the Beauty and the Beast are definitely Catholic. They, They... they seem, like, Bell and well, the Beast seem totally yeah. Catholic. But yeah. Eric, less so. Eric seems very, yeah, like Scandinavian or German or something. Yeah, so first of all, uh, Carl said on a boat because if they were Catholic, they'd obviously have to get married according to Catholic canonical form. They'd be required to get married in a church. But if they're Wait, not, don't some dioceses allow outdoor weddings now? Could they, Catholics ever get married on a boat? They do. So I, I presume, yeah, so to Michelle's question... Some dioceses do allow outdoor weddings now, and I suppose it's possible that if they had been Catholic, their diocese would be allowing that. And to Mary's question, could Catholics ever get married on a boat? Yes. It wasn't until the Council of Trent that Catholics were required by canon law to be married according to a canonical form to be married in a church and with a priest as a witness and those kinds of things. If you got married on a boat, if you were to try and have that annulled later, would the diocese under whose jurisdiction it is be like the port at which the boat is based or yeah this is so there are a lot of canonical questions with this boat marriage so um (laughs) we haven't even gotten to the rest of it i know so one thing is that you know um they say that the diocese that's responsible for the moon is the diocese of orlando 
because that's where Cape Canaveral is. And so like the astronauts who go to the moon, you know, go from Cape Canaveral and therefore the diocese of, of, of Orlando is kind of responsible pastorally for the moon, so to speak. So I, I think maybe if you got married in a chapel on a boat with the permission of the bishop, it would be the bishop of the place from which the boat set sail. Set sail. So let's say Ariel and Eric were trying to get an annulment. She was a mermaid who was transformed into a human being Presumably because she wanted to marry Eric so bad, but she also really wanted to be a human being really bad. Like she had a whole grotto full of like human treasures that she kept and she like sang a whole song about how badly she wanted to be human. There's such a thing as marriage of convenience, right? How do you weigh the two motivations? Yeah. So when two people say I do, the the tribunal asks the question, first of all, were they capable of saying I do, which is what we've been talking about. And then what were they saying I do too, um, or to what were they saying I do? So it was the, was marriage itself the, the object of their consent. So you could partially simulate your consent, but you could also totally simulate your consent. So a person who is going through the act of marriage, kind of the, 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 the appearance of marriage, but just to, to get something else, some other good that they desire, um, is said to be totally simulating their consent. So if you're just totally simulating the marriage for the sake of um, some other good, then you haven't really said I do to what marriage is at all. But at the same time, human beings are complicated and, and they're wills are complicated and so you know usually sort of we're saying i do not in like the absolute pure sense of like i absolutely want marriage in its entirety but with a constellation of factors and a constellation of motivations and so it's very rare i think that you would have you know solely one motivation for marriage but i think what the tribunal tries to parse out is was part of what you were doing even implicitly right because the church wants to give marriage the benefit of the doubt as much as possible so it was part of what you're doing even implicitly trying in some way to establish this lifelong partnership um, between a man and a woman that is marriage. Another canonical thing with princesses that I was thinking about is, have you guys seen Princess and the Frog? Yeah. It's been a while. I watched it on Saturday. Well, we had to turn it off at some of the scary parts because my daughter got scared. And there's a part where, uh, you know the part where the, like, Southern Belle is marrying the guy who she thinks is the Prince of Moldovia or whatever? The time when the frog breaks up the wedding, it's right before the minister or whatever says, I now pronounce you man and wife. And so he kind of like, the frog breaks up the wedding right before that. And so the implication is that they're not married. Canonically, if they had already said that they consented to be married to each other, then they would have at least followed the form of marriage. So there's this like confusion in Disney movies that the saying like, I now pronounce you man and wife is the thing that makes the marriage. But really consenting is the thing that makes the marriage. So that would be the vows, whenever the vows happen in the in the wedding or when... Yeah, when, I would think if they've exchanged their consent, then even if they got broke, the wedding got broken up after that. What do you think, Carl? Yes. <laughs> like as soon as both parties have exchanged consent, that's and the so marriage. at what point does that happen? The vows? Or does the vows, it yeah. That? Like yeah. in Princess okay. Bride, you know how in Princess Bride when the guy is like... What is the guy, the marriage guy saying? Man and wife. Say yeah. man and wife. He's like trying to get him to skip ahead. You know, the guy's saying like, marriage is what brings us together. And then Humperdinck is saying, man and wife. Right. Say man and wife. Um, Humperdinck is himself invalidating the marriage because he's skipping over the vows, which are the important part, not the say man and wife part. This has been Disney Princesses and Canon Law. I'm J.D. Flynn. I'm Mary Rezach. Carl Bunderson. Michelle LaRosa. We'll be back. Thanks for listening to another episode of CNA Newsroom. This episode, we tried a couple of different things. We're still trying to figure out what works best for this podcast and what you most want to hear. So feel free to send us your feedback. But 
I, I do want to leave you with a few thoughts about Advent. You know, this is, um, for a lot of Catholics, this has been a very hard year. Advent in the Church is the beginning of a new liturgical year, and so it's an opportunity for a new beginning, a renewal for us in faith. And Advent is also the time when we invite Jesus to come. We, we remember that he came into the world. We remember that he'll return to the world, but we also invite him to come more deeply into our own hearts. And I think right now, as a lot of Catholics are um, continuing to see the struggles of the Church, um, all of us could benefit from inviting Jesus to come into our hearts, to give us a renewal in hope and faith, to remember that at the core of our faith is God-made man, Jesus Christ who came into the world um, as a poor, small, helpless child who grew into a man, who proclaimed the gospel, who proclaimed the kingdom, who suffered, died, was buried, and resurrected for each one of us, who conquered death, and who gave us a church that gives us the sacraments and gives us grace. It's a church of sinners. We all know that. Um, but it's a church of grace. And I think Advent is a time when we can remember that at the heart of that church is the heart of Jesus Christ, and we can ask Christ to convert our hearts. So this Advent, that's what I'll be praying for, just that simple prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. I hope you'll join me in that prayer. This has been another episode of CNA Newsroom. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Our producers are Kate Vike and Joan McKeown. Please subscribe to our podcast and please review it too. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and you can review it and give us a bunch of stars and, and that'll be awesome. A special thanks this week to Father Michael O'Loughlin, to Perry West who came on the podcast, to all of you who are listening, uh, to our guests in our Disney Princess and Canon Law segment, and uh, happy Advent, everybody. We'll be praying for you.